Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter, Danny Parisi, and I'm here with our editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. How's it going, Jill? Hi, welcome back. So good. How are you? I'm good. Welcome back to you, too. Happy New Year. This is our first Week in Review recording since the break. Um, We had our year in review episode. We had our final episode last year. And this is our first week back in, in the office and paying attention to what's happening in fashion. So we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about today. Um, first, we're going to talk about Victoria's Secret. Their CEO announced somewhat abruptly that she'd be stepping down this week. And then we're going to talk about Rolex raising their prices, um, which is something they do pretty regularly, but they did it again. And it's worth talking about, I think, because it kind of speaks to what's going on in that whole world and with them in, in particular. And then finally, we're going to talk about this ongoing lawsuit between Adidas and Tom Brown, which I actually didn't even know about until this week. But um, yeah, that will be fun too. So let's start with Victoria's Secret. So um, on Tuesday, it was announced that Victoria's Secret CEO, Amy Hawk, I think, or Hoke, I'm not sure, um, is going to step down by the end of March after just eight months in the role. Um, She informed the company of her decision to resign last week, but it was just announced to the world um, on Tuesday of this week. Uh, Kind of confusing. She's the CEO of Victoria's Secret, the brand but not CEO of Victoria's Secret, like the whole company. There's Victoria's Secret and Co., which is like Victoria's Secret and Pink and and all that. So she's just the CEO of the brand. Um, and she's going to be replaced by Martin Waters, who is the current CEO of the comp- of like the parent company. Um, so he's going to take over her role. I don't know if that's permanent or just interim or, or what. Um, Jill, what do you make of that, like I said, somewhat abrupt um, announcement? She was there less than a year. Less than a year. I think that... Um, it's something that we've seen across the industry in terms of, I think that pink was probably thriving. It's younger, it's colorful. It was kind of speaking to the trends of the times and, um, we've seen it, gosh, uh, Nancy green when Athleta was thriving, like was pulled Mm -hmm. into a larger, um, brand within an umbrella of Gap Inc. to Old Navy. She has since left. Um, Libby at Madewell. She's actually like thriving at J. Crew. She's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like I we see this like umbrella companies scooping in a CEO that's really proven successful um, in terms of the brand. More often than not, the brand that they are coming from or that they originally were leading was is more, I guess. <laughs> it's more timely. And you don't want to say that it's like a circumstance where, of course, this brand is thriving. I'm sure that they are doing very instrumental and powerful things. But there are such high hopes for this um, C-suite executive to come into the larger brand and do what they did um, prior in the course of a short period of time. It's a lot of pressure. It's harder to lift a bigger brand that's already established, especially a brand, I would say, like Victoria's Secret, that's really um, (laughs) under the microscope, we'll say. They're trying some things to become more um, inclusive, more authentic, all the things, the buzzwords. And um, I mean, let's just say right now, Martin Waters who's another white man coming in. It's just, and that's been with L Brands for 2008, since 2008. Um, so has been around since all the the trauma. It's interesting. It's not what I would expect. And we'll see if that's like a permanent shift. But anyway, no surprise. I would assume that she's under a lot of pressure. It was interesting that they said she's going <laughs> to, I don't know. I guess I think that it was, it was worded a little bit kind of um, like, psh, 
she wants to go like spend time with her family in Florida. Like <laughs> it was, <laughs> Boo. I, I don't know. I thought yeah. that was interesting, but um, yeah, I, I can see it. It, it reflects different industry um, shifts that we've been seeing um, across companies. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right that um, sometimes when there's a, a portfolio that with multiple brands and there's like the flagship brand, but then there's a younger brand that's part of the portfolio that's doing really well. Um, you mentioned Madewell, but I also think Aerie is another kind of example. American Eagle is, American Eagle is doing fine, but Aerie is a like one of their newer brands that is just doing so incredibly well. Um, and I definitely think there's a sense of like, well, we, we should just pluck the CEO from that brand put her in charge of everything and that should fix it all. And then the whole company will be seeing the same growth at that small brand is. And, and yeah, definitely that's not something you can just do. You can't just like pluck somebody from one brand and put them somewhere else and expect instantly the same results. So, uh, definitely was a, a lot of, um, pressure there. Something that's interesting to me about Victoria's Secret and like, I've probably played into this a little bit. I think there's this narrative that they're, um, collapsing or, or not collapsing, but like, totally out and that all these new exciting underwear brands are like completely, you know, eating up uh, all of their, their supper basically. And, and that's not totally true. They're still so huge and so dominant. They're just less so, you know, and their, their sales are down compared to like, you know, the last two years they've been falling, but they've fallen like 7% or something this year or last year, which is not good. And the shareholders always like to see the line going up, not going down, but it's like, they're still so huge. They're still mm-hmm. so dominant. So the market it, it's interesting share to me. is high. Yeah, the market, like it went from 30 something to high. 20 something, which is like yeah. 20% of the business, 20 something percent of the business is, wow, that's a, that's a huge industry. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I think there's, there's some uh, law or something that like never gets enforced that like companies are not supposed to have more than 30% of market share anyway in any industry. Like, that's not good for, you know, the market. So, um, yeah, they're still so huge. Um, but it, it is interesting. I feel like shareholders and, and investors are across the industry are just, like, so merciless. They're, like, the tiniest bit of degrowth or deceleration, and it's like, you're out. You're not giving us the returns we want. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It feels like a very ruthless business sometimes for that reason. I also have, feel like I've not been able to get a good sense of what exactly Victoria's Secret is doing. Like, what is their their overall strategy it is? It's like they they acquired Adore Me, which uh, is like that newer kind of younger um, underwear brand. And, and that seemed like kind of a bold move. Uh, but other than that, I, I feel sort of I'm not sensing a coherent vision for like what they're trying to do you know do do you get what i mean yeah well they also acquired frankie's bikinis which along the same lines it's it's more um again size inclusive it's younger it's fresher it's they're they're hitting the right notes with the young target audience so i think that they're just trying to um say we're no longer all sex all the time (laughs) tall skinny big boobed white women um so anyway they're just like i think that they're trying to say they're showing they want to show that they're embracing this other side the new norm in terms of um consumer habits consumer shopping habits anyway what's resonating and um it's a little bit, yeah, hodgepodge, I guess. I don't know if it's reson- their play is resonating with the consumer. I still think of like if I'm going to want a push-up bra or something sexy, I'm going to go to Victoria's Secret and Airy if I want a bralette or, you know, another um, young direct-to-consumer brand. But um, I think it's just doing what they can 
to, uh, I guess, hit the right notes in terms of consumer. It's interesting. I wonder if um, you mentioned Aerie, and I'm such a fan of like Jennifer Foyle, like AEO, American Eagle Outfitters, did something a little bit different where she was like, uh, what was her role? Um, Global brand president. And they didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, move her to be the CEO of American Eagle brand. They moved her into this chief creative officer of AEO Inc. um, recently Mm -hmm. as her promotion. So she, um, you know, American Eagle folks do report into her, but she kind of has her hand in she's not fleeing her airy role she has her hand in more of the the AEO brands which it kind of feels like a better move um oh definitely which you would think that more would go that way as opposed to just like you're good here let's put you here doesn't work bye you're gone when you're clearly a yeah. valuable player it just seems so limiting but anyway but and it definitely seems like there's the running a newer, younger, growing company is a different set of skills and like a different um, uh, profile, I guess, than running a big multi-brand public corporate entity or something. So I I really feel for the executives who kind of get moved from one to the other because they're, like you said, they're not the same. And it does feel like a smarter move. Like if someone's doing really well, helping this younger brand in the portfolio grow, rather than taking them away from that thing that they've been doing so well at, maybe just find a way for them to kind of stay there like with Jennifer Foyle and, but still maybe use some of that magic elsewhere in the portfolio without just putting everything on them and just hoping it works out. So yeah, same with like adore me. Like you don't expect, tell me the CEO's name again, the founder. Ah, anyway, I don't know. You would never expect Um, him to like come in and be CEO of Victoria's secret, but yeah, if they want to bring him into a leadership role across the, Victoria's Secret Inc. or whatever the larger company mm. that would make great sense. Um, just Morgan Herman Weish, by the way. Oh, Weish, Weich. Yeah, I wouldn't sure. have thought of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never mind. Apologies to Morgan, but no, I did not know that that was his name. Um, yeah, but no, anyway, I agree. But let's move on to Rolex. Um, so Rolex announced this week that they're raising their prices. Um, like I said, they, Rolex raises their prices pretty regularly. They're kind of like Chanel, where they sort of just do it whenever. There's no ju- justification given or anything. There's no apologetic email that's like, oh, we have to do this because of, they're literally just, you know, it's more expensive now. Sorry. Um, but it's it's not up that much. It's like 2 or 2, 5, 2.5%. Um when the watch is like $10,000, that is a lot, but, um, but it's not, it's not a huge jump. Um, the interesting thing about them to me is that I I kind of think of Rolex and Nike as kind of similar and that they're just so utterly dominant in their field that they can kind of just do whatever they want and nothing seems to really dislodge them from that top spot, you know, like, I don't know. Rolex is by far the the biggest, most successful Swiss watch brand, and they or luxury watch brand, and they just are always in that spot. It's kind of the only movement really in the top three. I'm I think Omega is one of the others, and I forget what the third one is. But it's like two and three swap places recently, and that was the only kind of big change in 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 the top of the luxury watch market. Um, so anyway, to, to the comparison to Chanel, I do feel like those luxury brands that are really just top dog. They make so much money. They're, they're, there's no threat to them, really. They can kind of just, you know, they can change prices whenever. They can do whatever they want, and it doesn't really threaten the the dominance. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think? 
I agree. But man, they do it like clockwork. Apparently, Rolex increases the prices every January. Oh, wow. Every January. So this was expected this year is the word on the street. And yet they went ahead and jumped the gun and had another price increase in September. So this was like two rapid increases. Last January, they raised it 3.5% last January. And then in September, it was only in the UK and a similar amount in Europe in November, but 5%. So damn, last year it up 8.5 anyway up much higher and then now i guess they're reeling it back a tad bit but not Mm -hmm. holding back and you've written about the resale market everybody yeah they're getting smarter about making money in terms of they're getting in on that resale action as well so um is there a new somebody new heading up the (laughs) rolex i'm not sure I don't know if there's somebody new, but I, I, you're right. I have written about this a lot. And they're, they're such an interesting company because there's such a huge ecosystem around them. They they don't sell Rolexes directly from Rolex. You get it from like the authorized dealers. They call them ADs. Um, and, you know, there's entire businesses and livelihoods and, enti- and a whole industry basically around Rolex specifically. There's tons of secondhand stuff. Um, and, around the buying and selling of Rolexes. Um, I have been told recently that it's basically impossible to buy a Rolex brand new without waiting months or more, even more than a year just because the wait list is so big and the demand is so high and they don't make a ton of them. And so if you were to buy a brand new Rolex or acquire one somehow, you could sell it instantly on the secondhand market for more than it's worth because it's just so hard to get. Um, the interesting new thing it was new as of uh, like a month ago. Um, Rolex started to do their own resale, their own certified secondhand watches, and the way they do that is again, since they don't have their own store, they started to give some certified, officially certified by Rolex secondhand watches to some of their ads. And I was talking to somebody in resale recently who works with some of these companies, and she was telling me that what she had heard is basically before this you could either sell new Rolexes or you could sell secondhand Rolexes and you could not do both. Oh. If you wanted to sell secondhand Rolexes, then you could not also be an authorized dealer of new Rolexes. So there's was a lot of lane choosing. You kind of had to decide, are we going to try to be in the very lucrative market of selling new Rolexes or the very lucrative market of selling secondhand Rolexes? And, and you can see, you know, do some searching. None of the places where you can get the secondhand ones also sell new Rolexes. But the change is that now some of those select authorized dealers who get new Rolexes will also get some secondhand ones. They have to be three years old or more, and they'll get them from Rolex. So it's that the small price changes filter out to all of both the official and the unofficial sellers of Rolexes because that makes it just like makes everybody make more money. So it's just kind of this whole big ecosystem that, that that's all really that's like the, yeah. the changes i've seen and that's why i say they're so dominant because they can like make these tiny changes that just filter out to you know hundreds and thousands of other small businesses around the world totally and you have, make a point about the wait list first of all like if you're willing to wait you're willing to pay an extra thousand dollars when it's your turn to, to get it i would think and also i gotta wonder like um luxury this high spend luxury consumer. I just recently bought a car. I'm not getting the highest, uh, the most expensive car, let's say that. But um, there was talk amongst 
people I know who are car experts who were saying, you know, go for this car. The people who are buying, you know, this brand, like they want the latest, newest thing. If you get a year, if you're going for a used car and you get a year old, like you're going to like get a good deal because the luxury consumer doesn't want this. They want, they want to spend the money. They want to get the coolest, newest thing. I would think that the luxury, there's some sort of like similarity with the watch customer, um, luxury timepieces. They're going to the ultimate retailer that they've always gone to for their watch. If there's a wait list, if they want to watch, maybe it's like we're talking about like the luxury um, fashion shopper doesn't always sell their stuff to resale. There's a very small percentage that are playing in this resale world is what the platforms are telling us. So if they can get some watches that are used in front of this consumer who may that may not even like occur to them to go to resale and even look in that market, um, and they're seeing it for the first time awareness, um, as the like you said, the scarcity is good, but it's probably detrimental a little bit right now when um, they're losing customers. <laughs> I don't know if that, yeah. if that makes sense. No, I think it does. And, and you make a good comparison to cars. I, I often feel like watches are bought and sold more like cars than like fashion. And handbags are kind of getting there too, where there's this whole ecosystem of authorized dealers and like cer- you know certified dealers and then secondhand dealers and retaining value and the kind of like in the, you know, when you buy a car, it's like as soon as you drive it off the lot, it loses a certain amount of value. And watches have kind of a similar thing. There's an, also a whole thing about if your watch doesn't have the box and papers that it came with and all this all this stuff. Um, yeah, they're, they're just such, especially when you get up into the Rolex kind of world, they're so expensive and there's so much value tied up in them um, that they're kind of bought and sold differently than you know, stuff on the real real or whatever. I mean, the real real yeah. does watches too, but you know what I mean? Like just regular luxury fashion. They're almost as expensive as a car. <laughs> they really can be, especially a high-end Rolex. But um, anyway, let's let's leave it there and move on to our last topic, which I'm excited to talk about because I always enjoy talking about funny lawsuits with you. Um, <laughs> Adidas is currently suing the designer Tom Brown, who I think, correct me if I'm wrong, he's recently named the new chairman of the CFDA, right? That's Oh, Tom Brown. you are correct. I forgot yes. that. Um, over the use of stripes. Now, okay, so I think that this sounds very silly when you describe it at first, and then I think it's slightly less silly, but still kind of silly to me, which is basically um, Adidas uses stripes, specifically the three stripes, a big part of their brand identity they're called like the brand with three stripes is a, the the phrase that they use there's literally a wikipedia page for three stripes that you can look up um it's a big part of their branding and they sued tom brown a little while ago um for the use of stripes in his clothing originally he had used three stripes and they kind of threatened him over it he added a fourth stripe um so now it's totally different and then it was fine um the the thing that makes it slightly more reasonable to me, although again, I still think kind of silly, is that when uh, like Adidas makes sportswear and Tom Brown makes suits, they do not really overlap much. Um, And so the four stripes on a pair of dress socks or on the inside of a cardigan or a suit jacket or something, no one's going to be like, is that Adidas? Is that suit Adidas? Um, But recently, Tom Brown has kind of started to expand a little more, some more casual wear, some sportswear, approaching sportswear kind of styles. Um, And I think that's where Adidas is more touchy about it. Um, 
again, I feel like that makes it sound slightly more um, meritorious, but uh, I still think it's kind of silly. What do you think? I agree. It's four stripes. Three stripes, it's, four stripes. It's totally different. And the argument is we've been doing this for 10 years. Where have you been? Is what Tom Brown is saying. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I more... They were talking about, I think the argument also by the brand is this is a signature after 10 years. We've been doing these four stripes at this point, you know, let us run. You're a three stripe brand. Um, I personally, you know, I'm a fan of Tom Brown. I don't think of the four stripes when I think of the brand. I may think of the red, white, and blue, the three stripes that are more like Americana, a little bit like navy, a little bit darker. Um, That's more a signature to me. Um, they're also making the argument that we use horizontal. No, 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 no. Yes, horizontal stripes. Adidas is more the vertical stripes. And um, but I don't know. I, I'm team Tom Brown here. I think um, just four stripes compared to three. Um, and even just the styling of it, even if it's more casual. We were talking about Tom Brown's look at the court. He went to in court for this trial. He went with his shorts. He's not wearing shorts and like sambas or whatever the f. You always picture like a dressier look with Tom Brown. It's like a loafer, like um, it's a knee sock, which may you know skew, I guess Adidas. But if it is like a striped knee sock with horizontal stripes, it's one striped knee sock. There's always like an asymmetrical, more fashion forward um, look to these brands. So I I'm. I wouldn't see the confusion either. Um, we'll see how this plays out. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I also think a stripe is kind of a hard thing to claim a ton of ownership about. It's it's a stripe. You know, it's a fundamental design element. Um, and there are certain things, you know, if you made a sneaker that had three vertical black and white stripes at an angle on the side, like exa- like that might be a little, but it's just a stripe. You know, lots of things have had stripes for thousands. It's what, what happens when you make a line with color, like you make a stripe. So I, I think it's, yeah, it's a little bit frivolous. Um, I remember when there was the issue about Rode, which was the R H O D E, which is Haley Bieber's skincare line, um, which had the exact same name as an existing fashion brand called Rode, which had been around for like 10 years. Um, they, the fashion brand sued Rode, the skincare brand, and that's like still in court. And I don't think it's going super well for the fashion brand, which is insane to me because that's literally just taking their name. Um, I, I mean, it ha- they haven't made any official decisions, but the judge ruled, I believe, that they, the skincare brand could still use the name while the trial was ongoing, which the fashion brand had hoped that they would not be able to do. And I feel like that's just going to make it more and more ingrained in people's minds that Rode is the skincare brand. Anyway, Agreed. Part of the the argument there, though, I talked to a lawyer about this at the time, is like skincare and fashion are pretty close together. Um, there is a strong potential for confusion or, you know, lots of fashion brands do skincare or beauty stuff on the side and vice versa. Like they're very intertwined. It's very reasonable that somebody could think that it's the same company or something. Um, and that's sort of the 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 important factor in trademark stuff like this is, is there a re- could a, would a reasonable person have some confusion here? The lawyer I was talking to was saying that uh, she had some example where there was a fashion company she represented and then some very obscure like bioelectric something company with the same name, but they had no conflict. Like they kind of briefly had some legally mitigated discussion about it, but then it was like, okay, it's fine. There's absolutely no 
reason anyone would think these two products are related. They can both keep using the, the same name. Um, I, Adidas and Tom Brown are both fashion, yes, but like you said, they're like, if you saw a stripe on the Tom Brown suit or on the socks or something, I think it's very unlikely that you would think it's Adidas. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't I don't think it's a very strong case, but we'll we'll see what happens. I did think Tom Brown wearing shorts with the suit to court was the most Tom Brown thing imaginable. <laughs> but and I got to say, I love Tom Brown's design. I cannot get into the shorts with a suit. I, I, I no disrespect, but I. Yeah. I don't think it has looked good on most men I've seen wear it, and I don't think I, you look like a schoolboy to me. I kind of I tend to agree. I don't think a lot of guys can pull that off. <laughs> yeah, Tom. Tom looked good, I must say. Yeah, no, I mean I, he can pull it off. I'm, I just think generally it should be avoided for the layman. <laughs> right, I'd, I'd prefer a kilt personally. See a kilt, yeah, because there's there's some cultural heritage there. Yeah, I'm on board with the kilt. <laughs> Next, next uh, glossy event. Look out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's all the time we have this week. Um, thank you so much for being here, Joel. Um, yeah. Don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. really helps us out a lot. And don't forget, you should also subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because you will hear the Week in Review episodes every Friday with me and Jill and uh, interviews between usually Jill, sometimes me, with some industry insider every Wednesday. Um, Jill, who is our next interview guest? Hey, hey, your cameo, you are up. With Dowie Chow, that's right. Um, yes, I remember this. I recorded a couple of weeks ago, but I interviewed Dowie Chow, who's the designer and co-founder of Public School. Um, but we were talking about his current job is as the creative director for Brady, which is Tom Brady's fashion brand. So we talked all about that, um, about his design philosophy, what it's, you know, different uh, strategies about multitasking because he's working on several different brands at once and lots of interesting stuff. He's so cool. He's like intimidatingly cool. Uh, <laughs> and it was a great interview. So yeah, that's what our next Glossy podcast will be. Also subscribe to our sister podcast, the Glossy Beauty Podcast, um, because they do a lot of the same stuff we do, cover a lot of the same things, but from the beauty side. Um, and those, those folks are doing a great job. Um, okay, I think that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for listening. And Jill, thanks for being here. Thanks so much.